don't know if, I don't know if any of you thought that perhaps uh, there would be a shift away from the genealogies, but not yet. We're closing in on them, however. First Chronicles chapter 7. Uh, this conference that I go to in Detroit and have for probably the most, but not all the last 20 or 25 years, is always geared to pastors and always has a theme. And this year the theme was on being faithful and focused, and it was just a series of, I don't mean to minimize because it was a great conference, but it was, the whole focus was upon the pastor's task to faithfully understand and explain and preach the word. And one of the points that was hammered home was that uh, a text can never mean to us what it did not mean to the author. And so I've been in a cold sweat ever since knowing that uh, the genealogies are our portion. Uh, let's go ahead and stand please this evening. The author's intent with the genealogies is, I believe, to remind the Israelites that they have a legal covenant standing before the Lord, that his harsh dealing with them by sending them off to captivity did not undo his promises nor their obligations before him. Um, so having said that, we could have just read through the entirety of the genealogies and come to that conclusion. Uh, so what I want, really want to do this evening is just make two main observations from the long passage that we have this evening. We're going to begin by reading simply verses 1 through 5, and then we will read through the remainder as we go tonight. First Chronicles chapter 7 and verse number 1. Now the sons of Issachar were Tola and Pua, Jashub and Shimron four, and the sons of Tola, Uzi and Raphaia and Jeriel, and Jemai and Jibsam and Shemuel, heads of their father's house, to wit, of Tola, they were valiant men of might in their generations, whose number was in the days of David two and twenty thousand and six hundred. And the sons of Uzi, Israhiah and the sons of Israhiah, Michael, and Obadiah, and Joel, Ishiah, five, all of them chief men. And with them by their generations after the house of their fathers were bands of soldiers for war, six and thirty thousand men, for they had many wives and sons. And their brethren among all the families of Issachar were valiant men of might, reckoned in all their genealogies fourscore and 7,000. And let's stop there and we will pray and be seated. Father, as we read these genealogies and think about the amount of time that is involved, from Adam to Abraham to David to the captivity, You are the eternal, unchanging God, not a shade different in all that time. And we, on the other hand, are but vapors. We are but clouds who pass quickly. May we be always oriented to you. 
May our faith be always in you. May our trust be always of you. Please help us tonight. Minister your word to us, please. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated. In Ezekiel chapter 18, which is written during the time when Israel has been taken captive, when they have been led away by the Babylonians, removed to a distant land, taken from their homes. God takes up their accusation against him that he is being unfair. The word our King James Bible uses is the word unequal. They accuse God of being unequal. And the nature of their complaint is this, is that they are being punished for past sins. Sins that they did not commit in which they have no part. And God is carrying them away to a foreign land, not because of anything that they have done, but because of things their ancestors have done. And God's response to that is twofold. It is, first of all, that they themselves are guilty of all the sins of their ancestors, that they are no different, and that they are people in a covenant. And their ancestors, having made the covenant, bound future generations to covenant obligations. But, of course, the accusation hasn't gone away because the captivity has come and gone. Is God fair? Has God been fair to you? Is God fair to your neighbor, your child? Pastors wonder if God is being fair to them when they hear about other ministries, more fruitful ministries, more blessed ministries. Is God fair? I don't really think that I could argue to you that it is the main point of the text this evening, but it is a question that is addressed within the framework of these genealogies. The reality is, folks, that God is always just, always righteous, always Righteous in everything he does down to the most minute detail of what he does, he is righteous. But it is also equally true that he does not deal with us in the same way and along the same lines. That is true not only concerning his blessings, but true concerning his chastisements. I think it's Psalm 106 maybe Psalm 103, in which the psalmist notes that the Israelites were never punished with the punishment that their sins deserved. And we would all have to say that were we seen clearly. So the first point, the first observation about this lengthy passage that we're about to begin reading begins first of all with this, is that because God is just, He deals with all of us equally in certain ways. Because God is just, he deals with all of us equally in certain ways. 
There are 12 Israeli tribes. You know that. They are the 12 sons of Jacob, born to him through his four wives. They constitute the foundation of the nation of Israel. These tribes have been addressed and are presently being addressed. For instance, and now we're going to begin to do some reading. In chapter 7 and verses 1 through 5, the passage that we just read, it was the sons of Issachar that was addressed. Issachar is one of the sons of Jacob. Let's turn our attention now to verse number 6. The sons of Benjamin, Bela and Beker and Jediel 3. And the sons of Bela, Esbon and Uzi and Uziel and Jeremoth and Eri 5. Heads of the house of their fathers, mighty men of valor, and were reckoned by their genealogies twenty and two thousand and thirty and four. And the sons of Becher, Zemira, and Joash, and Eliezer, and Elioni, and Omri, and Jeremoth, and Abiah, and Anathoth, and Alameth, all these are the sons of Becher. And the number of them after their genealogy, by their generations, heads of the houses of their fathers, mighty men of valor, was 22,200. The sons also of Jediel, Bilham, and the sons of Bilham, Jeush, and Benjamin, and Ehud, and Kenanah, and Zethan, and Tarshish, and Ahishachar. All these the sons of Jediel by the heads of their fathers, mighty men of valor, were 17,200 soldiers fit to go out to war and battle. Shupim also and Hupim, the children of Ur and Hushim, the sons of Ahur. So they're the sons of Benjamin, and we will turn to this in a moment, but the entirety of chapter 8 is also devoted to the sons of Benjamin. That brings us to chapter 7, verse number 13. The sons of Naphtali... Jaziel and Guni and Jezer and Shalom, the sons of Bilhah. So we have Issachar and we have Benjamin and we have Naphtali. And verse number 14, you have another set of sons, the sons of Manasseh. Asriel, whom she bare, but his concubine, the Aramitess, bare Macher, the father of Gilead. And Macher took to wife the sister of Huppam and Shuppim, whose sister's name was Maacah. And the name of the second was Zelophehad, and Zelophehad had daughters. And Maacah, the wife of Machir, bare a son. She called his name Perish, and the name of his brother was Sheresh, and his sons were Ulam and Rakam. And the sons of Ulam beat him. These were the sons of Gilead, the sons of Macher, the son of Manasseh. And his sister, Hamalekath, bare Ishad, and Abiezer, and Mahaliah, and the sons of Shemeda were Ahiam, and Shechem, and Liki, and Aniam. That's Manasseh. Then in verse number 20, there are the sons of Ephraim. And I will probably mention this again, but you, are, you remember that Joseph was... I don't want to say passed over because he wasn't really passed over, but his two sons came in and took the place of two of the 12 tribe members. And here they are, Manasseh and Ephraim. Those are the sons of Joseph. So you'll never read about the land of Joseph 
because it's going to be the land of Manasseh and the land of Ephraim who are the sons of Joseph. Back to the text, verse number 20. The sons of Ephraim, Shethelah, and Barad his son, and Tahath his son, and Aleda his son, and Tahath his son, and Zabad his son, and Shuthelah his son, and Ezer, and Eliad, whom the men of Gath that were born in that land slew, because they came down to take away their cattle. And Ephraim their father mourned many days, and his brethren came to comfort him. And when, into, when he went into his wife, she conceived and bare a son, and he called his name Beriah, because it went evil with his house. And his daughter was Sherah, who built Beth on the nether and the upper, and Uzan Sherah, and Rapha was his son, and Reshef, and Tela his son, and Tehan his son, Laodin his son, Amahud his son, Elishama his son, Nan his son, Jehoshua his son. Those are the sons of Ephraim. Issachar, Benjamin, Naphtali, Manasseh, Ephraim. Verse number 30, Asher. The sons of Asher, Imna and Ishua and Ishuai and Bariah and Sarah their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Heber and Malkiel, who is the father of Berzavith. And Heber begat Japhlet and Shomer and Hotham and Shua their sister. And the sons of Japhlet, Pesach and Bimha and Ashva, these are the children of Japhlet. And the sons of Shamer, Ahi and Rogat, Jehuba and Aram. The sons of his brother, Helam, Zophah and Emma and Shelesh and Amal. The sons of Zophah, Sush and Harnifer and Shuel and Beri and Imrah. Bezer and Had and Shammah and Shilsha and Ithran and Bera. And the sons of Jether, Jephunneh and Pispah and Era, and the sons of Ula, Era and Haniel and Rezus, all these were the children of Asher, heads of their father's house, choice and mighty men of valor, chief of the princes. And the number throughout the genealogy of them that were apt to war and to battle was 26,000 men. So here is Issachar and Benjamin and Naphtali and Manasseh and Ephraim, and Asher. Here are six of the twelve sons. Two of the twelve sons are not mentioned at all. Dan is not mentioned. Zebulun is not mentioned. Now one of the things that is happening in this passage, folks, by the structure of the passage, and again, if we ask what is the author's intention, it is to remind the Israelites that they are God's covenant people, that they still have covenant obligations and they still have covenant promises. And part of those covenant promises is land. You know, we just happen to live in a part of the world, <clears throat> in a part of the country, that back in 1862, President Abraham Lincoln signed the Homestead Act into law and made provision for settlers, basically, to become landowners in some of the plain states or territory that would become plain states. And what that means, folks, is there are places and parts, particularly in Nebraska, where there are people living on land that they have owned in their families since the early 1860s. 160 years of family history of land. And that land is precious to those people. 
It is the land of their ancestors, their homesteaders. These are people for whom the land was given by divine promise, by divine allotment. This was the land that God gave them, and they were to view it as precious land. And they had been removed from that land, and it had been taken from them because of their violation of God's so many laws and regulations and their blatant disregard for them. But now they're being allowed back, and the covenant promises and the covenant obligations endure. This is part of what will come much later, Ezekiel 37, again, written during the captivity. When the people are being carted off, Ezekiel tells the story of being taken away from his land and carted along to the land of Babylon, escorted by foreign soldiers. Ezekiel writes of the day when God will bring all of those people back to the land. That great passage, folks, in Ezekiel 37 of the dry bones that has been so abused as being a passage about revival. And it's not about revival at all. It is God's promise that there is a future and a life for a reunified Israel that will come back to life just as they had once been alive. So all the tribes had land. Twelve sons, twelve portions of land, and then God says, now Levi doesn't get any of that land. Levi is the religious tribe and Levi gets me. I'm their inheritance. So take Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and divide the land now. Now there is again 12 Jewish men who will receive the land. All of that to say, folks, right, to go back to the first observation, which is that God deals with all of his children equally in ways. Everybody got something from him. Everybody got land. Everybody had a portion It was divvied out, Joshua tells us, by lot, sort of a random kind of selection. Not that we believe it was completely uncontrolled by God, but this was the way that God had the land divided out, and everybody got their allotment of land. I think that we could, by extension, again, right? it's not the main point of the text, but we could extract it from the text, which is that we have the assurance that God will provide for us all that is necessary. And that is a promise that is made to all of his children equally. God will care for you. God will provide for you all that you genuinely need in this world. Now, in America, I mean, let's just be realistic. That's just not good enough. That's just not good enough. It's just not good enough for most Americans to have what they need. Americans can only be happy in their estimation if they can have everything they want. And I'm an American and I understand that. I understand that pull. But biblically, the promise is that you will have everything that you need in this life. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 as he is raising money for poor saints that God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, 
always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work because God will see to it that we have all that we need. And as it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, which would be God who gives food to the farmer, minister bread for your food and multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God for the administration of this service not only supplieth the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgiving unto God, whilst by the experiment of this ministration they glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ and for your liberal distribution unto them and unto all men. God provides for all of his children equally. But one of the ways that he does that, folks, is by giving an abundance to some so that they will give to others who do not have. That is part of his methodology. That is part of his will. Ephesians 4.28, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing that is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. That he may have to give to him that needeth. 1 Timothy 6.17, Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate financial words. So God has promised to care for all of his people with all that they need in this world, materially. Not only that, God has made access to true justice available to all of his people. And I'm not talking about worldly courts. I'm not talking about a broken judicial system like ours to whatever extent it is broken. In chapter 7 and verse number 15, you have this note. Zelophehad had daughters. Zelophehad had daughters. Numbers chapter 27 recounts to us the impact of Zelophehad having daughters. Our dad died in the wilderness, they said. He was not one of Korah's rebels. He just died for his own sins. But he didn't have any sons. He only had daughters. And God has said that the land passes from son to son, from father to son, and there is no son. So what happens to us? What about us? In this highly patriarchal world, and it is a highly patriarchal world in the Old Testament, folks, do women have access to justice? Numbers 27, 5 through 7 are God's response. Yes, they have justice, and not only do they have justice, they have land. Folks, we all have access to the throne of grace. We all get, for lack of a better word, or to put it in the language of our, my sermon, we all get a fair hearing. We all get to lay out our case before God. We all get to talk to Him. And we all get to expect that His decisions will be made in justice and righteousness because God's justice has never been for sale. And it is not distributed to those that He likes better in disproportionate measures. 
And in fact, folks, the world in which we live is very corrupted in the very concept of justice, and we know that from the fact that it is always modifying the word with something else. Social justice. Racial justice. When justice should be justice. In God's economy, in the economy of the law, Exodus 23.3, Leviticus 24.22, Proverbs 11.1, the poor are not right because they're poor, and the rich are not wrong because they're rich. And everybody is expected to play honestly in the world marketplace. Let's turn now so that we might say that we have read it to 1 Chronicles chapter number 8. Benjamin begat Bela, his firstborn, Ashbel the second, Ahara the third, Noah the fourth, Rapha the fifth, and the sons of Bela were Adar and Gera and Abihud and Abishua and Naaman and Ahoah and Gera and Shephuphan and Huram. These are the sons of Ehud. These are the heads of the fathers of the inhabitants of Geba, and they removed them to Menahath. And Naaman and Ahiah and Girah, he removed them and begat Uzzah and Ahihud. Shaharim begat children in the country of Moab after he had sent them away. Hushim and Bera were his wives. And he begat of Hodesh his wife, Jobab and Zibiah and Mesha and Malcolm and Jeez and Shekiah and Mermah. These were his sons, heads of the fathers. And of Hushim he begat Abitub and Elpael. The sons of Elpael, Eber, Mishim, Shamid, who built Ono and Lod with the towns thereof, Bariah also, and Shema, who were heads of the fathers of the inhabitants of Ijalon, who drove away the inhabitants of Gath, and Ahio, Sheshach, Jeremoth, Zabadiah, Arid, Eder, and Michael, and Ispa, and Joah, the sons of Bariah, and Zebediah, and Meshulam, and Hezekiah, and Eber. Ishmari also, and Jezliah, and Jobab, the sons of Elpeel, and Jacob, and Zikri, and Zabdi, and Elianai, and Zithai, and Eliel, and Adeah, and Bereah, and Shimrath, the sons of Shimhai, and Ishpan, and Heber, and Eliel, and Abdon, and Zikri, and Hanan, and Hanani, and Elam, and Antoth, Ijah, and Ephediah, and Penuel, the sons of Sheshach, and Shimsherai, and Shebariah, and Athaliah, and Jerish, and Eliah, and Zikri, the sons of Jehoram. These were the heads of their fathers, by their generation's chief men, these dwelt in Jerusalem. And at Gibeon dwelt the father of Gibeon, whose wife's name was Maacah, and his firstborn son Abdon, and Zor, and Kish, and Baal, and Nadab, and Gedor, and Ahio, and Zachar, and Mikloth begat Shemaiah, and these also dwelt with their brethren in Jerusalem over against them. And Ner begat Kish, and Kish begat Saul. Saul begat Jonathan, and Melchishua, and Abinadab, and Eshbaal. And the son of Jonathan was Meribael, and Meribael begat Micah, and the sons of Micah were Pithon, and Melech, and Tereah, and Ahaz. And Ahaz begat Jehoiada, and Jehoiada begat Alameth, and Asmavath, and Zimri, and Zimri begat Moza, and Moza begat Binia, Rapha was his son, 
Elisheah his son, Azel his son, and Azel had six sons whose names are these, Azrakam, Bakaru, Ishmael, and Shariah, and Obadiah, and Hanan. All these were the sons of Azel, and the sons of Eshek his brother were Ulam his firstborn, Jehush the second, Elephalet the third, and the sons of Ulam were mighty men of valor, archers. And he had many sons and sons' sons, and hundred and fifty. All these are of the sons of Benjamin. So all Israel were reckoned by genealogies. And behold, they were written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah, who were carried away to Babylon for their transgressions. God treats all of his people equally in very important ways. We all have assurance that he will care for us in this world. That our needs will be met. That we will have enough to eat and enough to wear. We all have the assurance of having access to his justice. And we all have the assurance that God is just in his doings, folks. Verse number 1 of chapter 9 is not a footnote. For all Israel, So all Israel was reckoned by genealogies. Behold, look, they were written in the books of the kings of Israel and Judah. These are record books. These are the census books. These are the countings who were carried away to Babylon for their transgressions. Why did they go to Babylon? Not because we have an arbitrary God. Not because God is unpredictable. But because God is righteous. This is what he had said. He told them that on day one. On day one, folks. I mean, it's like going down to buy a car, and when you sign the contract, the guy says, now your payments are going to begin on November 1st and then you get the little cube, the little reminder to make the payment and you go, really? But we were told at the very outset, we were told from the first that if you want to take the car home, you have to pay for it. God is just in his doings. And in fact, we will eventually, someday, we anticipate, get to this point, Second Chronicles 36.16, but they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. And in fact, folks, if God is not absolutely just, then mercy and grace are meaningless words. They're just meaningless. They can't mean anything if God is not just. So, my first observation is that God deals with us all equally in very important ways. But secondly, secondly, there are ways in which God does not deal with us equally at all. There are 12 tribes. We've already talked about the fact that the Levites are excluded from the land promise because their inheritance is the Lord himself. They're not getting a bad deal. 
We have read eight chapters of the nine chapters of genealogy, eight of them. Judah has been prominent. In eight chapters, Judah has occupied much attention. In eight chapters, Levi has had much attention. In eight chapters, we just discovered, because we just read it in chapter 8, Benjamin has an entire chapter devoted to Benjamin. In eight chapters of genealogy, the tribe of Dan is mentioned once in, Dan, in 1 Chronicles 2.2. The tribe of Zebulun is mentioned three times in the entire books of Chronicles. Chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 6, verse 63 and 77. Among the 12 tribes who have equal access to God's justice, who are promised land, there is a tremendous diversity of prominence and use. They're all provided for. They're all covenant people. They all have access to his justice. But he doesn't use them all the same. He does not ascribe to them the same utility, if I may put it that way. Judah was the ruling tribe. Levi was the religious tribe. Benjamin gets much prominence for two reasons. One, it is the tribe of Israel's first king, Saul, which is in many ways a great mystery. But also because the Benjamites seem to produce some tremendous warriors. And folks, God didn't simply need kings. And he didn't simply need priests. He needed soldiers, men who would go out to battle. He needed leaders. And so in chapter 7, you have these references to these mighty men. These are not egomaniacs. Quickly, we will turn our attention to David's mighty men. These are not egomaniacs. These are powerful men with tremendous accomplishments under their belt that God uses for his purposes. We spent a number of weeks dealing with this, folks, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. That our one God equips us differently for different purposes. That he is the one who directs who gets the gift and how apparently or visibly successful that gift will be and what that gift will accomplish. That's not a dimension of unjustice that doesn't make God unfair you have in these genealogies for instance <clears throat> men whose entire life seems to be like those of Benjamin chapter 7 verses 6 and 12 everybody seems to be mighty and valiant you meet people like that folks to people who for whom their family history seems to be one of prominence and blessing and all of their children are doing well and all of their endeavors are apparently successful and <clears throat> everybody in the family knows the Lord. And you go, man, my family's not like that. 
But then there are people whose entire experience in life seems to be that, like some of the Ephraimites back in chapter 7, verses 20 through 23, whose lives are characterized by sorrow. People came in and slew the man's sons because they wanted the land and his cattle. And this was a great grief to him. And he named his next child accordingly. It has gone evil with my house. This is the way my life goes. And you meet some people who it seems their family history is one of sadness and sorrow and sickness. Is God unfair? Is God unjust? It is imperative, folks, that we do not allow anything that we experience, anything that we experience, to color our understanding that God is always righteous and always just in all he does. For God to use somebody in a way that we would like to be used, if I could put it that way, does not make God unjust for having done so. He is God. He gets to do what he wants. Or if God should allow us to suffer a grief or sorrow that others do not seem to share, that does not make God unjust or unrighteous. He is, again, after all, God. And there are several passages, folks, in which God is very pointed and plainly plainly speaks to us that nothing he would ever do to us, it really comes close to what we really deserve to experience. And if we were not inclined to think like this, folks, I would just point out to you that there would be little purpose in God talking to his own people about things like jealousy and envy and malice. If I wasn't inclined to think that God was treating you more fairly or treating you better than he treats me, why would I ever be jealous of you or envious of you? So these are very real emotional responses and reactions. These are very real ways of interpreting the world that we see. But it really cannot be allowed to call God's righteousness or his justice or his love into question. It is a call for us to trust his wisdom. Let's pray. Father, this can be a real challenge to some of us who are plagued plagued with questions about our place and our status and our fruitfulness and successfulness in this world. Who are inclined to call your righteousness into question. Forgive us for doing that. May we be faithful in all that we do. May we endeavor to be obedient in all of our service. And may we commit our souls to you, the great keeper of our souls, you who may be trusted. And I pray this for us in Jesus' name. Amen.